0: These things, Lord, we ask for Christ's sake, for your glory, through the Holy Spirit. Amen. I want you to imagine with me waking up at one in the morning. Now, some of you might wake up at one in the morning as just sort of a matter of course. But this is different. You're waking up at one in the morning and frantically running through your house with a backpack, gathering everything you can of value to stuff it into that backpack, And then slip out the door, get into your car, grabbing the kids, and then hustling down the road. Imagine with me, it's about 1.30 in the morning now, you're on the road, you're on I-10, and you're going as far away from Mobile as you possibly can. When you get to Texas, you're going to take a left-hand turn, and you're going to head south, and you're going to get across the border, and you're going to go down to Mexico, and you're never going to come home again. You had no warning, you had no notice. This was a snap decision. You had to leave everything behind imagine with me leaving everything you know everyone you love with the exception of those who live under your roof imagine leaving your home leaving your boat leaving your job leaving your church family leaving everything to flee for your life it's pretty traumatic to imagine it doesn't isn't it now imagine with me you get to another country you don't know the language You don't know the people. You don't know the culture. You have no connections. You have no contacts. You have nowhere to live. You're purely at the mercy of the people who are there. Imagine starting a new life in a new place, all to ensure your physical safety, the safety of your family in the face of persecution, in the face of violence. It's pretty crazy to imagine. I don't think any of us can quite get our minds around that. Well, that's precisely what happened to Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus, who was about two years old. In Matthew 2, we read the text earlier, the angel of the Lord warns Joseph in a dream saying, okay, Herod, he is not happy about this newborn king. He's going to try to kill you. You need to flee for your life. And they get up in the dead of night and they flee. By the way, that, that, that action of, of fleeing, being a, a refugee, there's over 100 million people in our world today who've had to experience something along those lines. That's a lot of people. That is 20 times the entire state of Alabama's population. So I think everybody lives in Alabama 20 times over, there's that many people in our world who've had to flee like that. That's, that is crazy to think about. People fleeing from violence is not something new that happened in the year 2022. We see it back there in the, in the story, the, the account in Matthew chapter 2. Herod's not excited about a king of kings and a lord of lords being born. He's going to try to kill. He's going to slaughter all the babies in Bethlehem and and all the areas around Bethlehem just to be safe. And so off Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus go to the safer precincts of neighboring Egypt. So Herod the Great, he's a little local puppet ruler who rules over Judea, over really Palestine at that time. He's called Herod the Great. Egypt at that time is not under his control. Right, it's sort of even a rival kingdom to his. So getting to Egypt would we'll get to a place where they are beyond the reach of sort of Herod's henchmen. But what I want to zero in on is, is Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, where Matthew tells us, we read the text earlier, this is all happening, Jesus and Mary and Joseph are all going to Egypt to fulfill a prophecy that was given hundreds of years before, out of Egypt have I called my son. That's a quote of Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Look at Hosea 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. And Matthew is saying that prophecy of Hosea 11, verse 1, finds its fulfillment in Jesus going down to Egypt and then coming back up out of Egypt a few years later. Now, Matthew doesn't expound at all on how that verse is fulfilled and what he is doing with it. His audience would have been very familiar with Hosea 11, verse 1. His audience would have been individuals, probably Jewish Christians, who were steeped in the Old Testament. By and large, if if we were to just sort of do a poll here this morning, be like, hey, how many of you sort of know what Hosea 11 is about? Most of us are not super familiar with it, right? It's not one of those passages that we're like, hey, John 3, 16, and Romans 8, 28, and... Hosea 11, like it's not one of those top 10 passages that we all know that you're going to have as your your life verse. Um, It's a less familiar book, it's a less familiar passage, it's one of the so-called minor prophets, one of the shorter prophets, doesn't mean that they're less important, but one of those shorter prophets in an obscure context, and let me tell you, Hosea is one of the toughest books in the Old Testament to fully grasp. The overall message is pretty straightforward, he is speaking to the people of Israel, the northern 10 tribes. He's calling them to repent. He's telling them God's judgment is going to fall if you don't, but God still loves you. That's his message. But along the way, he uses a lot of obscure metaphors, difficult language, allusions that we're not immediately familiar with. So I think to fully appreciate the wonder of Matthew 2:15, out of Egypt have I called my son, we've got to park it this morning. In Hosea 11, in an unfamiliar passage, by the way, one of the things I have enjoyed over the last few weeks, we've had the opportunity to go to Isaiah chapter 7, to Micah chapter 5, to Hosea 11, places that we normally don't go this time of year, but to see how all of Scripture fits together, to see all of the connections between different parts of the Bible and to see how God's plan is one plan that he is working out, it is incredible. None of us could come up with this puzzle. None of us could come up with a story. None of us could come up with something so intricate and deep and profound and God-exalting and rich. Let me just give you kind of the, uh, the Cliff Notes version of what is going on. Hosea 11 is going to talk to Israel and say, guys, remember the Exodus? Remember back when you were in Egypt, your slaves in Egypt? I brought you out. I brought, God saying, I brought Israel out of Egypt in my love and my kindness. I rescued you from Egypt. I put you in the land. I treated you well. I lavished favor on you. But what does Israel do? They rebel. They reject God. They sin against him. They, they, they want nothing to do with him. And so what does Hosea 11 say? God saying, because of that unfaithfulness, you will be kicked out of the land. The exodus will be undone. You will go into exile and into Assyria. And then the chapter comes back around where God says, but I'm not going to unleash the full weight of my fury. In fact, one day I'm going to bring you back again into the land. God's saying the exodus is going to be redone. So let's just kind of walk through this text this morning. First off, I want you to notice this first movement in the first part of Hosea 11. The exodus done. We're talking about history. When Israel was a child, I loved him and called my son out of Egypt Earlier in the book of Hosea, God compared his relationship to Israel to the relationship between a husband and a wife. God has Hosea marry a woman whose name is Gomer, who is unfaithful. She goes and becomes a prostitute. And God says, that's kind of how my people have treated me. I've entered into covenant relationship with you, and you've cheated on me by worshiping all of these other idols. And so God says, you're going to be divorced. You have been unfaithful. You're going to be divorced, removed from the land. And yet, in spite of that, i'm going to restore you again and then there's a a series of judgment speeches now we get the same message with a different metaphor god is saying i'm like a father and israel's like a son and a son that i rescued from slavery in egypt and i taught you and i raised you up and i put you in the land but rather than being a loyal and faithful son you have been a rebellious son Right? Rather you'll be a son who reciprocates the father's love with loyalty and respect and affection, you've gone and run the streets. You've been a rebel. You've joined the local gang. You've run with the wrong crowd. So verse 1, God says, I loved Israel when he was a child. He's picturing Israel's infancy in Egypt. They go down with just a small group of people. Remember Jacob and his family. And they grow into a mighty nation. And he says, out of Egypt I called my son. That's talking about the Exodus. Israel's being personified as a nation. Now, this language is rooted back in the book of Exodus. To make sense of this, we need to go back to Exodus chapter 4. So turn there with me. Exodus chapter 4. And here is God giving instructions to Moses to say, you're going to go into Pharaoh and you're going to give him my word. Exodus chapter 4, it's page 83 in my Bible, for what it's worth. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. God says to Moses, Thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is what? My son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. So God's saying, Israel is like my child, as a nation personified as his child. So Hosea 11 is saying, when Israel was a child, I loved him, I called my son out of Egypt. That's sort of encompassing all the plagues. Remember, they crushed the Red Sea and the display of God's power and his glory in rescuing Israel from the slavery of Egypt. Now look at Hosea 11, verse 2. As they called them, so they went from them. Now, some translations will say, as I called them, so they went from me. But the Hebrew is pretty clear here that it is a they. So who's doing the calling? Who's doing the going from them? As you read through the Bible, you'll find out that over and over and over again, God appeals to his people through the prophets. He raises up Moses to speak to his people. He raises up Joshua. He raises up Isaiah. He raises up Jeremiah. He raises up prophet after prophet. God speaks and appeals to his people through the prophets. And what this verse is saying is the more that I appealed and called my people through the prophets, the more they rebelled. The more they were like, mm, I don't want to hear it. God's saying, the, even though I was good, even though I rescued you from Egypt. By the way, this got to start in the Exodus. Remember, they're out of Egypt for like three minutes. They're at Mount Sinai. What do they do? Make us a golden calf. The idolatry gets started. Throughout the wilderness wanderings, they're They're, they're going after idols. Uh, We see in Numbers 25, there is a local Baal, a local idol. And by the way, it says you went after the Balaam. Those are the Baals, the local deities, the local idols. Baal Peor, the women of Moab, seduce the people of Israel. They go and worship these idols. God strikes them with a plague. It's just like this is Israel's history in a nutshell. God's good to them, and they go after idolatry. They want nothing to do with the God who has saved them and entered into covenant with them. Instead of worshiping Jehovah, they worship the local gods. They worship the graven images. They burn incense unto these images. That, beloved, is the propensity of every human heart. God lavishes goodness and kindness and favor and grace on us. And what do we do? We go after idols. We worship the gifts instead of the giver. God gives us a family and it's a good and wonderful thing. And we're like, I'm going to make family ultimate. Family is going to be more important than even worshiping God. Or God gives us money to be able to buy things that we need, and we're like, ah, money is what it's after. I'm going to go work 100 hours a week and just try to to sort of climb the corporate ladder, and we make it into something that is ultimate. That's idolatry, is taking something that is good and making it ultimate. Taking something that is a gift and putting it in the place of the giver. Verse 3 continues. I taught Ephraim. Now, we're talking about the northern ten tribes. Remember, Israel split into the northern. It's called Israel or Ephraim, and then the southern is called Judah. So Ephraim's one of the tribes. It's the largest of the, of the twelve tribes. It sort of stands to represent the northern ten tribes of Israel. Okay, I taught Ephraim also to go by taking them in their arms, but they knew not that I healed them. So, again, the image is like, like a dad takes his, takes his child, holds his arms, teaches him how to walk. So I taught you how to walk. When you couldn't do it, I picked you up, scooped you up in your arms, and I carried you. We get that language in Deuteronomy where God's like, I've carried you in my arms to the promised land. I bore you on eagles' wings. I brought you here to this place. Now, how did God teach them how to walk? Remember, he gave them the law. So you're going to be a special people to me above all the earth, and here's how to live in the land. Here's how to live for my glory. Here's how to live to represent me to the nations. Here's my law. So I've taught you how to walk. I've brought you to the land. I have been so good to you. Verse 3 goes on to say, but they knew not that I healed them. Remember, they get to the waters of Marah. They, they get to this place where they're, they're thirsty. They haven't had water in a while. There's bitter water. The water is going to kill them. So God's like Moses, throw a tree in the water. God heals the water. And then it says, I am Yahweh who heals you. Right, I'm the God who heals you. God spares them and protects them, delivers them from disease. And it says they don't even recognize it. They are blind to God's provision, blind to God's care, and they attributed their success to their own policies. We made a really cool alliance with these nations over here. They attributed their success to their religious practices, and worst of all, they're like, hey, we had a good crop. It's because we sacrificed to Baal. Look at that, where God's like, no, I'm the one who blessed you. Verse four, metaphor changes here from a father raising a son to a farmer leading an animal. I drew them with the cords of a man with bands of love. And I was to them as they that take off the yoke from their jaw and laid meat upon them. Okay, often a common metaphor for slavery in the Bible is that of a yoke. All right, you got an animal, you put a yoke on it, you hook them up to the plow, boom, off you go. He's saying, I'm like the one who lifted the yoke off of you. I rescued you from slavery. I... I led you gently. I led you and drew you to myself. And it says, I laid meat under them. Remember, God fed them in the Exodus. He gave them manna for 40 years. He sent quail. Like, they didn't have to figure out what to eat for dinner for 40 years. Think about how awesome that would be, right? We have so many choices, right? You go to Walmart, and are like, mm, what do I want for dinner today? And it's almost paralyzing the number of choices. I us get some soup. And there's like 8,000 options of like, like, which one do I need? Uh, God's like, I figured the menu for you, I provided for you in the middle of a wilderness. He's like, I'm like a farmer who has taken beautiful care, wonderful care of his animal. This is not like a, a big old farm where they're in the little stalls. So it's like, this is like the, the, the 4-H, you're, you're caring for it. He's like, I, I've taken care of you like a father takes care of a son, like a farmer takes care of an animal, I drew you to myself. God draws sinners to himself overcoming our blindness, overcoming our unbelief to bring us to faith in himself. God says, I gave you the law and I lifted the yoke of slavery off of your neck and gave you a yoke that was easy and a burden that was light. I'm like a tender farmer who has stooped down to feed, to just throw the food over, eat the food, Tina. No, he doesn't do that. He's like, I'm gently hand-feeding my people. So we're talking about the exodus being done. We see a glimpse of, God's grace. God is saying to the people of Israel, look at your history, how generous I have been, and how rebellious you have been. You see, man's sin is not because God has not given us everything that we need. You go to the Garden of Eden, man's perfect environment. We're not sinners because our environment is bad. We're sinners because our hearts are bent away from God. Now, if you're not a Christian here today, I just want to invite you to do something. I want to invite you to reflect on all the ways that God has been generous to you. He made the sun come up this morning. And you did not deserve the sun to come up this morning. You did not deserve another day. You're here and your heart is still beating. Your diaphragm is still going up and down and you're you're breathing. Oxygen is circulating through your body. God gave you a job. He's given you a family. He's given you life. Chances are most of us didn't even have to walk to church today because we have this amazing gift called a car. We're not freezing in here because we have have heat. God has given us so much, none of which we deserve. He's given you a mind and the ability to take in this beautiful world he has created, ears to listen to symphonies, eyes to see sunrises and sunsets, Mouths to speak, taste buds to enjoy the amazing array of flavors that God has lavished on this planet. He's given you the ability to enjoy His blessings. You say, and I don't think that God is really good. I want proof that God is good. You are the proof that God is good. You are Exhibit A of the generosity and the grace of God. And when you think about the rebellion of our hearts, the fact that God does not simply cast us into hell for our ingratitude is an amazing gift of his grace but if you're a christian today god's not only given you all of that god has rescued you from egypt god has delivered you from sins slavery and from certain death and from eternal damnation you could say almost at the root of israel's sin was absolute ingratitude romans 1 traces the downward spiral of the nations so when people knew god They glorified him not as God. Neither were what? Were thankful. No sense of what God has granted to us in delivering us from sin. Israel turned back to Egypt over and over again. They longed for the leeks and onions of Egypt when God had given them the grapes of Eshcol. So quickly allured by the bling of the world, by the bales of our time, when God has given us the gold of heaven. That's the exodus done. That's that first scene. As we think about what, what Matthew is doing with Hosea 11one we we've got to understand the original context is not actually a prophecy of the Messiah, it's a look back onto Israel's history to say, God rescued you from Egypt. And it's almost as if what Matthew is saying, and God's saying, I'm gonna do it again through Jesus. Now, verses five to seven shows the exodus sort of being undone. It's sort of like the, the camera gets put into rewind, and Israel was in slavery. God brought them into freedom, but because they reject the God who gave them freedom, he puts the story into reverse, and the exodus gets undone. Look at verse 5. He, that's Israel, that's the son, shall not return unto the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king. So he's saying, you're going to go back to a state of slavery, but this time it's not going to be south back to Egypt. It's going to be sort of going off to the east to Assyria. But either way, the exodus is going to be undone. You are going to be vomited out of the land. That's the language that is used in the Bible. You're going to be booted out of the land. The exodus will be reversed, will be taken away. So Assyria, they were the the great empire. We've talked about them in recent weeks. They were the threat of this time in history. They were brutal. They were horrible. And they were really powerful. So just imagine if, let's just take North Korea. Not a nice place. There's nobody who's immigrating to North Korea that I'm aware of. Imagine if North Korea were just sweeping over all of North America. And everywhere they go, they're murdering people, they're doing firing squads, they're imprisoning people, they're torturing people, they're burning churches down. And they if you surrender to them, they're going to just torture you to death. Everybody's terrified of them. That's the Assyrians. all right? Absolutely terrifying enemy. Absolutely cruel and violent. The things they did to their prisoners are just unspeakable. The way they treated their captives absolutely horrible, and they would essentially conquer the northern ten tribes, do what we would call today ethnic cleansing, take them completely out of the land, and then bring foreigners into the land and have them intermarried, where Israel, the northern ten tribes, ceased to be a distinct nation. Those ten tribes never came back. Verse 5 is simply saying, because of your rebellion, because you refuse to return, you're going to return to slavery. You notice both that, that word return at the beginning of verse, beginning and the end of verse 5. There's a word play there in Hebrew. You're going to return to Egypt because you refuse to turn to God. Same Hebrew word used in both cases. The reason you refuse to repent, you had opportunity. God, God did not do this on a whim. He said the warning after warning after warning, prophet after prophet after prophet, and they refuse it. We love our idols more than we love God. The exile to Assyria was entirely preventable had Israel turned back to Jehovah. But Israel hardened his will and steadfastly refused Yahweh's demands. He would rather be a slave in Assyria than be a servant in Palestine. And so lost his freedom and lost his home. Verse 6 shows us what this looks like and the sword shall abide on his cities and shall consume his branches and devour them because of their own counsels. Literally, the sword will whirl, will dance, will writhe in the cities of Israel. It would start in the north in what we would later call Galilee. That's where the darkness would descend. That's sort of where Mordor would take over. That's where Assyria would win their first victories. And that's why when Jesus comes it says, those who sat in darkness have seen a great light. The place where the invasion began is where the reconquest would get a start with the coming of Jesus. So the sword destroys. Uh, verse 6 is kind of a tough verse, uh, really tough verse to translate. Um, the sword will abide on his cities and shall consume his branches. You're like, what's, what's that mean? The word's literally branches. It could refer to a pole. It could be a metaphor for arrogance. It could be referring to the, the bars that you put up across the gates. Probably that's a good way to take it. The idea here is they're going to destroy the cities, and you're going to get behind your walls, close your gates, put the little bars across. It's not going to stop the Assyrians. There's nothing that you trust in will deliver you from this judgment that's going to fall. This is terrifying stuff. Terrifying stuff. The sword is going to crush you. Always going to be slashed through by the Assyrian, Assyrian sword. Israel is going to fall. And then the end of verse 6 says, it's going to devour them because of their own counsels. Your little plans and schemes. What did Israel try to do? They're like, well, let's go to get an alliance with Egypt, and let's try to thwart this. All of their plans, all of their attempts, all of their hopes would be crushed. We're talking about total and utter devastation. You see, one day, everything that people trust in other than God will go up in smoke. Maybe you're here today and you're saying I'm a bit of a skeptic and you sort of have built a refuge of arguments and clever ideas to say there's not really a God. And so one day all of that is going to come down like a house of cards. Maybe you are putting your hope today in your morality. I'm a good person. I go to church. I've been baptized. On judgment day, that won't amount to anything. Your morality will go up in smoke like a a newspaper soaked in gasoline when a match strikes it. It will not save you on the day of judgment. Israel's cities, Israel's gates, would not deliver them from the judgment and from the wrath of God. Only running to Christ. Your intellectual objections will collapse. Your money will run out. Your lawyer will not be able to accompany you to the judgment bar of God. The wages of sin is death and it always has been, and it always will be. This is depressing stuff. Verse 7 continues. My people are bent on backsliding. They are hung up on backsliding. They insist on this. And that word backsliding is built on the same word as that word turn, return in verse 5. It's just got a preposition on it. They're turning away from me, just pulling away, pulling away, over and over again, and they're bent on it. They refuse to submit They're hung up on turning away from God. They prefer their idols to God. They prefer their lies to the truth. They're inveterate in their rebellion. They're determined in their sin. They're committed to their evil. Man, what a horrible lot of people, and such were some of you. That is a description of every one of our hearts without Christ. We might express that rebellion in some more sort of um, civilized ways. We might sort of dress it up in the clothes of piety. Our preferred way of expressing our sin may be the sin of gossip. maybe the sin of greed. It may be the sin of covetousness. It may be the sin of self-righteousness. We're very good at, at dressing our sin up in garb that makes it look good and then sort of tolerating everyone else who sins in the same way that we do. Where we see this come out is when someone sins in a way that we don't like, then we bring down the hammer of judgment on them, right? Or if someone's sin steps on my toes, then I become morally outraged. Sin destroys. What verse 7 tells us. So they're bent on backsliding. Though they called to the Most High, no one would exalt them. Like God's not going to answer them when you suddenly are like, oh no, we need his help now. He's saying you have gone to this point where the judgment will fall. Sin will devastate. Sin will destroy. Point being is the exodus was done. God was good to them. They rebel against God. The exodus is going to be undone. The northern ten tribes go to Assyria. The northern two tribes go to Babylon. What a potent picture of our own hearts. Now listen, no nation has Israel's status. There's no nation that has this covenant relationship with God. All right? All all the nations are unlike Israel in that regard. But every one of us has the same propensity to idolatry. Valuing something more than God. An idol is what gives you your significance and your meaning in life. Your idol is what calls out your sacrifice and your worship. For some people, the idol is politics. For other people, the idol is entertainment. For others, it is family or money or status or power or influence. You fill in the blank. The idol can be anything. But God gives us life, and we treat that life like it is our own possession rather than a gift. He gives us mouths to speak, and we use them to promote ourselves, to tear down other people, to speak lies. He gives us minds to glorify him, but we fill them with emptiness. He gives us homes and families and jobs and money, and we treat these like they are ends in themselves. And we, we wonder, oh, God would never judge me. If he judged Israel, he will surely judge us. What Hosea is saying is sin is cosmic treason against a God who loves you like a perfect father. It's ingratitude of the highest order, and it brings God certain judgment. The wages of sin is always death. The exodus is reversed. And reversed it was, 722 B.C. The Assyrians came in, Israel was destroyed, it was game over for them. The story ended there. We'd be like, it makes sense. They sinned, they died. Right? They sin, God judges them. What is unexpected, what should be shocking to us, is the story that begins in verse 8. God comes around to say, yes, the exodus was done, it's undone, but I'm going to redo it anyway. I'm going to restore my people even though they do not deserve it. We get a glimpse into the compassionate heart of God in verse 8. Look at verse 8. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? God, How can I hand over my kid, to judgment. How shall I make thee as Adma and how shall I set thee as Zeboim? He's saying, can I treat them? Those are cities that were associated with Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah, God burnt them to a crisp fire and brimstone from heaven because of their their sin and their lack of hospitality and their greed and their covetousness and their injustice, and their immorality, the rampant homosexuality. He so says, I, I, I can't treat you like that. I can't totally and permanently and forever annihilate you. My heart is turned within me. My repentings are kindled together. That word repentings is the idea of compassion. God's saying my compassions are kindled like a fire. The very thing that calls out God's judgment, our sin, also calls out God's compassion. That is mind-blowing. The same sin that demands God's judgment and God's wrath also calls forth God's compassion and his love. It's as if Jesus loves us at our absolute worst. It's not that Jesus loves us when we're at our best. No, where sin abounds, grace super abounds. Verse 8 is a stunning statement. Now, this only makes sense. Verse 8 is only profound when we understand the demands of justice. There's a couple of metaphors that Hosea uses to describe Israel's rebellion. One is an adulterous wife. You know what the penalty under the law was for adultery? Death by stoning. The metaphor here, a rebellious son who's just incorrigible, who just will not be restrained. You know what the penalty under the law was according to Deuteronomy 21? Death by stoning. It should have been the end of the story. Justice would say, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The nation that sins should be annihilated. And God says, and I'm not going to do it. Verse 9, I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim. They're going to be judged, but they're not going to be annihilated. You see, the demands of God's love The key here is to recognize we are talking about God's people. This is not true of the world. This is not God saying, I love everyone equally, and everybody's going to heaven. But those he has set his love upon, those who are in a covenant relationship with God, nothing shall separate them from the love of Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus this morning, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. None whatsoever. Now, there are those, he mentions Adma and Zeboim. There are those in history who have faced the wrath of God unadulterated, where God has not restrained his wrath, but has given what sin deserves. And you know what we deserve? That. We deserve the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. We deserve the fate of everyone who was not on the inside of the ark. We deserve the fate of those who will cry out one day to the mountains to fall on us, to hide us from the face of the wrath of the Lamb. That's what we deserve. But if you are in Christ... Even on our worst days, God's love is fierce for you. God's compassion is called out even by our sin, and he will not unleash his wrath. Oh, he may chasten you. Yes, he may may discipline you like a father does a child, but you're still his child. That's what God is saying to Israel. Even though you're a rebellious son, you're still my son. You're going to go off into exile you're still my son, and the covenant is going to somehow be renewed, and the promise will somehow be fulfilled. God's saying, I will judge Israel's sin, but I will not annihilate Israel's hope. Justice, to be clear, demanded their complete and utter annihilation. But God's mercy and his love overtook them and overtook the execution of his judgment. Here's what God did. A remnant fled to the southern kingdom of Judah, and God raised up a godly king whose name was Hezekiah. God used Hezekiah to withstand the onslaught of the Assyrians. The Assyrians take just about everything but Hezekiah, a little island of safety. And the people of Judah and the remnant of Israel would later go off into exile on their own into Babylon, and then they would come back into the land. God would keep hope alive through them. And more importantly, he would keep the line of the Messiah strong. You can trace it out in in Matthew chapter 1. And the Messiah would be born. Now, why does God do this? Verse 9 tells us. God's like, I'm not going to come and destroy you uh, over and over again. Why? For I am God. And not man. The Holy One in the midst of thee, and I will not enter into the city. You know why God spares them? It's not because he's like, well, I see a little bit of good in you. Listen, there is nothing good in us to call forth God's love. Nothing. God doesn't look at us and be like, oh, man, there's some intelligence. Oh, there's a heart for me. Oh, you've got this great sort of desire. there's nothing good in us. In my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Those who are in the flesh, which is to be lost, cannot please God. Right? It's impossible. Why does God spare his people from judgment? Why does he save them? It's because I'm God. I'm not a man. My ways are not your ways. I am transcendent and I am different. The holy one in the midst of thee. Now, this is also stunning. We normally associate God's holiness with his judgment. Because God is holy, he hates sin with all of his being. And because God is holy, he must pour wrath out on sinners. But this verse is saying it's because God is holy that he's not going to obliterate the sinners. How does that work? Holiness demands sin to be judged. And God's saying, well, it's because I'm holy and consistent and unchanging that you're not going to be obliterated. It's because God will be true to himself no matter what. As we read these verses, we don't want to make this mistake. Some people read these verses and say, well, here's God waffling back and forth, and he can't make his mind up, and he's sort of just this big sort of bag of contradictions. God's using these rhetorical questions in verse 8 to say, I love you even though you don't deserve it. And yes, I'm going to judge you, but I'm going to restore you. God is infinitely consistent with himself. God is not like one day love and another day justice. He's always all of those things. He's not a pizza that we slice up into little pieces. The idea here is I am the Lord, I change not. The promise that God made from eternity past to love and to save his people will not be thwarted by man's sin. That's what he's saying. I'm the Holy One in the midst of thee. The question we should be asking is how can an infinitely holy God dwell in the midst of holy people and those people not be annihilated? Remember in the Old Testament earlier, we have the story of Uzzah, and he just dares to touch, reach his hand out and touch the Ark of the Covenant, struck dead. Or we get the two sons of Aaron who offer strange, unauthorized fire before God and fire comes out and consumes them. God is so holy, like all sin must be obliterated. Like how can a holy God dwell in the midst of really sinful people and those people survive? How can we stand before an infinitely holy God and not be obliterated and booted out? How can God restore Israel when they deserve annihilation God can only do this by his wrath being turned onto another God can only do this by justly forgiving the former objects of his wrath God can't be unjust and be like "It's okay I'll just overlook sin the sin's got to be dealt with it's got to be condemned the wrath has to go somewhere for God to save and forgive his sinful people for God to bring them back to the land so to speak He must somehow satisfy his wrath. He must somehow simultaneously display his love. He must somehow judge the sin, but spare the sinner. How's he going to do that? We're not told in this text. Verse 10 goes on to say, God's going to bring them back. They, okay, the same ones who were running from God, the whole rest of the chapter, like God's like, hey, I was drawing you and you just ran, you ran, you ran. They'll walk after the Lord. He'll roar like a lion, and, and he shall roar, and the children shall tremble from the west. They shall, the idea is come with trembling and humility, like completely changed. They shall tremble as a bird out of Egypt, out of, as a dove out of the land of Assyria, and I will place them in their houses, says the Lord. God's saying, I'm going to regather my people. I'm going to restore them into their homes. They don't deserve this. They're going to somehow walk after God when everything in their history says they're rebels. Somehow, the heart of the rebel needs to be turned into the heart of a submissive son. Somehow, those who rejected God need to now reverence God. God compares himself to a lion where he's like, When the time comes, I roar and my people come. He compares them to a dove in verse 11. I think the idea is like a homing pigeon. World War I, you know, they no technology, they would use those, those carrier pigeons to, to send messages. You know what carrier pigeon? You can take them, and they actually did this in World War II, put them in a little canister and they would drop them over occupied France with little things on there for the French resistance to be like, hey, tell us where the troops are. attached, and they attach it to the pigeon. After being taking up in an airplane, put in a canister, dropped out of an airplane, pretty traumatic stuff. I would have no idea where I am. They could still fly their way back to like the intelligence surface. The idea God is saying like a carrier pigeon, like a homing pigeon, my people will return. What's being described in verses 10 and 11 is a new exodus. The Exodus will be redone, is what God is saying. Just as it was done in the past, and then it was undone with Israel being kicked out of the land, it's going to be redone. And you're like, well, maybe that was the people coming back from from Babylon, uh, you know, with Nehemiah. That's not the fulfillment of it. That might be a little foretaste of it. Those northern ten tribes never came back to the land. The vast majority of the people of Judah never came back to the land. And even today, the vast majority of the people of Israel never have been back to the land. We're talking about something so much bigger than this. Now, you might ask, you're like, okay, we we sort of mentioned Christmas, and then we sort of left that way back in the rearview mirror. Let me, let's go back, let's back the truck up and get it back into the the, the bed of the truck. What does this have to do with Christmas? This gets quoted in Matthew 2.15, where Matthew says, okay, Jesus going down to Egypt I mean, Coming back, back about it, Egypt is a fulfillment of the prophecy that says, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Now, at first glance, you would be like, Matthew has yanked that verse out of context. He's extracted that verse out of context like a dentist extracting a healthy t- tooth out of a jaw. He's got some hermeneutical pliers and he's just wrenching that thing out, and there's blood, it's a mess. But we know that's not true because Matthew's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's not going to misuse Scripture. So we have to ask ourselves, how is Matthew understanding this? If the prophecy is originally about Israel's exodus and God's promised a new exodus, and now here's Jesus coming as God's son out of Egypt, what's going on here? I submit to you the exodus being redone. It's not Israel coming back out of the land of of, of Babylon. The exodus being redone, beloved, is Jesus Christ coming to this earth and leading his people out of sin slavery and bringing them not just into the land of Palestine, but to the new heavens and the new earth. It's as if Matthew is saying Israel was meant to be God's son, and they rebelled, they messed up. But here comes God's true son. And you know what? Jesus never disobeyed the father For one second. That's what the the temptation was all about. Oh beloved, there's a promise of a new Exodus here in Hosea eleven that never happened in history. And Matthew two verse fifteen is saying, Jesus is that new Exodus out of Egypt. These verses find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. It's like the Exodus is a just a sketch with no color. And the coming of Jesus is filling that sketch. It's like a pattern that gets recapitulated in the life of Jesus. So think about what happens in Matthew. Jesus comes up out of Egypt. Israel came up out of Egypt. Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights to be tested. Israel goes into a wilderness for 40 years to be tested. Jesus quotes a bunch of scripture that relates to those 40 years of temptation in the wilderness. Israel, they come out out of Egypt and they go to a mountain and they get the law from God. Jesus goes to a mountain and he gives the interpretation and the recovery of the law of God. What Matthew is saying is Jesus is the new and the better Israel. Jesus is the new and the better Exodus. Jesus is the new and better lawgiver. He is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament longs for. He is the seed of Abraham. He is the true vine That Israel was an imperfect vine. He is the promised son of David who will rule forever. In Jesus, in the words of Paul, all the promises of God are yes and amen. They all find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is the true son. Out of Egypt have I called my son Jesus is sort of recapitulating the history of Israel with one massive difference. Israel's history was one failure after another, one act of rebellion after another, disobedience followed by disobedience. Jesus, in contrast, lived an absolutely sinless and perfect life. He lived the perfect life that Israel obviously failed to live. He lived the perfect life that you and I obviously have failed to live. And not just to say, hey, here's a good example. Try to measure up. No, no, no. Jesus is not just saying, hey, try and do it like me. Try harder next time. That's not good news. No, his perfect life is lived in my place. And when I come to faith in Jesus, all the perfection of Jesus is put to my account. And so when God looks at Sam Sinclair, he doesn't see all the failure. He doesn't see all the sin. He doesn't see all the shortcomings. He sees the absolute and perfect obedience of Jesus. Do you ever find yourself buckling under this self-imposed weight of being perfect all the time? You Never can quite do it good enough, and you're always just sort of operating under this cloud of, of, of low-grade guilt. I'm never praying enough. I'm never going to church enough. I'm never reading my Bible enough, and I'm not forgiving enough, and I'm not a good enough husband. I'm not a good enough spouse. I'm a bad friend. I'm a bad church member. And listen, by the way, we should strive by the power of the Holy Spirit to obey God. But what I am saying to you, is we do not find our standing before God in our performance. We find our standing before God in the true Son who lives perfectly. We find our standing before God in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and anything less is not Christianity. If your Christianity this morning says, I believe in Jesus, that gets me to heaven, and now I work really hard to try to measure up, that's anti-Christian. That's not the gospel. The good news is it is finished, and Jesus... Paid the price on the cross. He lived the perfectly obedient life we couldn't live. And he gives that to all who will believe in him. That's the gospel. He alone is our hope. He alone is our righteousness. He alone is our holiness. First Corinthians 1 says that, that by God he has made to us our wisdom and our justification and our holiness. He is our all in all. But there's one other thing that has to be resolved here. I said a minute ago, the sin has to be paid for. The wages of sin is death. And there's a bunch of sinners through the Bible that God forgave who didn't really get what they deserved. The example that comes to my mind as the, perf- the, the, the most glaring example of this is David. All right, so he goes out and he commits adultery that deserves death,
1: he has a guy
0: murdered that deserves death. He tries to cover it up. He takes God's name in vain. Like David deserves to die 10 times over. The soul of the sin it shall die. And he confesses his sin and God's like, ah, and you're not going to die. And you're almost like, David's getting like an unfair deal. that no, Like no one else gets that deal. How can God forgive David? And his loss still have any weight or meaning if God's just, ah, yep, I'm gonna let that one go. Because God takes David's sin and he takes your sin and he takes my sin and he puts it on Jesus and sends Jesus to the cross. And Jesus goes as the Lamb of God and is slaughtered on the cross for you and for me. How can God do all of this? And be like, yeah, you deserve wrath, but I'm gonna restrain it and I'm gonna give you love and grace instead because of the cross. Jesus, as the representative of God's rebellious people, satisfied God's wrath for us, demonstrated God's love to us, personified God's mercy for us, and unleashed God's grace and mercy. At the cross, the musical score of God's plan finds its crescendo. It's there that the tension, whether suspended notes and clashing clashing harmonies, find their resolution. It is there that the discord turns to harmony. The cross is the key that opens the door into the banquet hall of God's mercy. It is the answer to the questions of every longing heart. So when we read in Matthew 2.15, Out of Egypt have I called my son, that is packed in there, the entire story of redemption. Israel's failure in the Old Testament to be what God wanted them to be Our failure. And then Jesus coming as the true Israel, as the representative, perfectly obeying God's law, dying as our substitute, rising again from the dead, and calling us to say, follow me and join me on this new exodus, where it's not about manna anymore, but I am the bread of life. Where it's no longer about the law of Moses, but about the law of Moses fulfilled in the one who kept it perfectly. No longer about Mount Sinai, but being coming to the new Jerusalem. No longer going to a piece of real estate in the Middle East, but going to a new heaven and a new earth. Father, we bow our hearts in awe.